there's going to be brokenness because we live in a broken, fallen world. But I am so grateful. I am so thankful that I serve a Jesus that went to the cross to conquer and arrest death. Amen? Are you glad this morning? I am so glad that he arrested death. Are you glad this morning? Come on, everybody, put your hands together. Well, how are you this morning? You look good. Uh, you really do. Turn to your neighbor and tell them they look good, even if you have to lie. Now, some of you don't go overboard. Well, I'm starting a brand new sermon series. I'm starting a brand new sermon series, and it's simply called Identity. We are going to be, for the next several weeks, looking at who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ, we're going to be walking through, uh, for the next several weeks, the New Testament book of Ephesians. And if you brought your Bible and want to follow along, you might uh, get a head start to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. But uh, many believers like myself are drawn to this little book. And I say little book because it's only six chapters long. And also because it presents the basics. I need the basics. It presents the basics and the foundation for any Christian that wants to become a more mature follower of Christ. With that said, I want to start with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, how would you like to be known for that? To be the faithful in Christ Jesus? And a lot of times I think we kind of leave off that last part, in Christ Jesus, which actually means joined to Christ. Join to Christ in one spiritual body. Do you realize we have the opportunity to be joined to Christ in not just this uh, spiritual body, but worldwide, the spiritual body of, of Christ? And then he goes on in verse 2 and says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you don't know anything about Paul's writings, the Gospels or the uh, epistles of Paul, he is saying... Uh, He's, he's writing a letter to encourage his friends. He's writing a letter to encourage his friends that are living in this world-class city of Ephesus. And he's writing it about 62 AD, which, and he's writing it from a Roman prison cell, which tells us that he's almost to come to the end of his life. And if you don't know anything about uh, this city of Ephesus, let me just uh, catch you up a little bit. This city of Ephesus was probably the most important Roman province of Asia in that day, the most important city in that Roman province. Um, it had uh, a population of about 300,000 people, so it was no small city. It had a large outdoor theater that seated like 25,000 people. And think about this, when this was thousands of years ago, it was located also on the edge of a great port or a great harbor. Ephesus had a lot going for it. It was a very advanced city. It was a little bit of an intimidating city. It was a very impressive city. And a big part of that was because there were a lot of smart people in Ephesus. There were a lot of scholars living in the city of Ephesus because it boasted as having one of the best and greatest libraries of all time, and especially in the world of that time. Uh, and it became a melting pot of nations. It became a melting pot of people, all sorts of different people. You had Romans. You had Greeks, you had Jews, you had Gentiles, all living in the same community. 
the temple of Artemis was there, which was a temple dedicated to the fertility goddess Diana. It was located there, which actually is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So Ephesus had a lot of stuff going on. Matter of fact, it had several temples dedicated to all sorts of gods. So it was very impressive, a very impressive city, but it was also a very, very corrupt city. Sex trafficking, prostitution were common in Ephesus. In fact, archaeologists uh, think that they have found uh, an ancient brothel right across the street from this great library that I was talking about. And they also believe that they have found tunnels that connected the library to the brothel. What's that tell you? It tells me people weren't exactly going to the library, all of them, to read, right? Or, or to study. So Ephesus was a very corrupt city, very impressive had all these different things going on, and it was a city that might have been classified as uh, open to spirituality. And I kind of say that lightly because they had over 50 different temples, all dedicated to all sorts of pagan false gods. I told you all that to say when I think about their culture, I can't help but see our culture in the picture. I can't help but see the resemblance between that culture, that corrupt culture that used to be, in our corrupt uh, culture today. Think about it. It's so similar. I mean, they weren't all that interested in or open to Jesus Christ. So what is Paul doing? He is writing this letter to his friends that are living in this high-pressure, fast-paced, corrupt world. He's writing this letter to followers of Christ who needed a pick-me-up, who needed uh, some words of encouragement just to help them keep going. Let me ask you today, how many of us need some words of encouragement in the world we live to keep us going? We all do, right? Probably every day we need those words of encouragement. Well, I believe today this message is part of some of those words of encouragement. But why go on this rant about Ephesus? It's not only to tell you who Paul wrote this letter to, it's to me to bring things in perspective because I think so many times we as even followers of Christ, we look at the Bible and we think it's just a bunch of information uh, gathered together, written a long time ago to some country bump bumpkins who were living way out in the sticks and we're thinking it really doesn't relate to us. Well, you'd be wrong. It's just as relative to you and me today as it was to this group of people thousands of years ago. And why? Because Paul is writing this letter to encourage believers. He's encouraging them to keep the faith in the middle of all these false gods, all this false teaching that's going on all around them. So I just want to say sometimes we need to stop and understand that the majority of the writings of the New Testament were letters written to you and me, people like you and me to give us information about the message and the purpose that God has for our lives. And this message of the gospel that Paul was presenting took root in these cities where these people were living this high-pressured, uh, fast-paced, corrupt life. And its message, the message of the gospel, took off like wildfire. So Paul is encouraging believers. Verse 4 uh, says this, For he chose us. Those are powerful words. For he, meaning God, chose us. Let me read it again. For he chose us, and then it says, in him. He didn't just choose us, but he chose us in him. And then when? before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. So here's the truth that I want you to take hold of today, whether you really understand it or whether you even really believe it. 
I want you to let it soak into your heart, mind, and spirit this morning that you were chosen in advance. You and I were chosen in advance. It's an amazing thought that before the world was created, you were chosen. Before you were born, you were chosen. Before your parents were born, you were chosen. Before your parents' parents, your grandparents, before your ancestors were born, you were chosen. I'll go as far as to say before the first person on this planet was born, you were chosen. Before any trees, any animals, before God created the world, before He created the sun, moon, the stars, and the galaxies, you were chosen. You were chosen. That's an awesome thought. I know it's hard to get your mind around because our human minds almost can't stretch that far. Okay, they can't stretch that far, but you were chosen. And as awesome as that is, right now on this earth, we get our sense of achievement a lot of times from what others think about us, that we're loved, that we're chosen, that we're accepted by others, and sometimes that's all based on how we perform, what we've accomplished, what we have done, and we're conditioned in the world that we live and in the culture we live to kind of think that way. And that acceptance many times that we receive from others, even those that love us and are closest to us, sometimes comes with some conditions attached. You might say some strings attached. So I think it's very hard to wrap our minds around the fact that God's love for us came in advance before we could ever do anything for Him. Before you could ever do anything for Him, He chose you and He loved you. Even before you came into existence, He loved you and He chose you. And His love is a love that isn't just a little bit of love, it's a lot of love. And it's an unconditional love. Let me break it down. Paul simply says, God loved you. And He chose you before even the world was made. Even before your parents even had a thought about you, He chose you. God knew you, He chose you, and He loved you. I know that's hard to take a hold of, but let your heart dwell on that for just a while. While I'm preaching this, realize that. Before anything was, He knew you and He loved you. Some people say, well, I've got that figured out. All that simply means is God already pre-knew who was going to choose Him. And it's like God looks down this long corridor through time into the future and says, well, that old Piercy guy, he's going to choose me, so hey, I'm going to go ahead and choose him back. That's not the way God works. That's not what that verse says. That verse says God's love rested upon us, and he chose us even before the world was created even before you were ever even a thought in your mom and dad's mind. But here's the kicker. I think it's more to prove that you and I can never do anything on our own to be saved. You and I can never earn our salvation. It's totally dependent upon Him. It really is. It's totally dependent upon Him, not you, not me, just God. And how many know we're not saved because we deserve it? Because we don't. We never will deserve salvation. And I'll say the mystery of salvation was in the heart and mind of God long before you and I ever even existed. So how in the world does that work? As smart of a guy as I am, I don't know. I don't know. And don't laugh at that either. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it works. And anybody that says they do know how it works, they're lying because they really don't. It's too big of a topic for us to really wrap our minds around but I will give you the fancy theological term that's described in the Bible or talked about. It's predestination. Anybody ever heard of that term? 
That term can raise a lot of uh, debates and arguments for sure. But I don't know how it works, and I'm thankful that I don't have to know how it works. I don't know how it works. I don't have to know how it works, but it's an awesome thought that God would say to someone like me, Dwayne, before you could do anything for me, I chose you. Before you could ever prove how worthy you are, I already see you as worthy in my eyes. That's our God. That's what he thinks about me. That's what he thinks about you today. The Bible says there's a mystery to God. Do you realize there's some mysteries to God? There's some things the Bible says that God knows that we don't know. I take comfort in that. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in knowing that he's privy to some information that I'm not, that he understands some things that I don't. Because if I understood and I was privy to all that, he wouldn't be God, right? And if you were, he wouldn't be God, but he is God. But I will say this, as people, we are created with a need to belong. And I say that because God created every one of us with a need to belong, but I will say this, and you need to hear this, but until we realize to whom we belong, our life is going to lack a sense of direction. It's going to lack a sense of purpose. And Paul right here is saying in Christ we can experience not just belonging, but true belonging because God has chosen us, because God has chosen you. I remember one time several years ago, uh, my wife Cheryl and uh, her brother James, they were getting ready to play in a three-on-three basketball tournament. And this was like 26 years ago when all of us were a lot younger. Um, uh, anyway, they were looking for a third team member. And I heard them talking about the game. And I'm over in the corner, and I'm thinking they need a player. I know Cheryl played in college ball, but I did play some high school basketball. I could be their third man. I could come in and save the day. I could be their clutch player. They never mentioned my name once. I mean, James looks at uh, Cheryl and says, uh, why don't you ask that uh, guy that you know? And she says, well, I'll ask, but I don't think he can play. And Cheryl says to James, how about so-and-so? And he said, yeah, he, he would be great, but he's already playing on uh, another team. And they're going through this whole situation, and I'm in the background just standing there minding my own business, kind of. I'm snooping in on their conversation. And I'm back there, and they're naming names, but my name's not one of them. And I'm back there, and I start to do some stretches, you know. Start to do some stretches and get down to my defensive stance, you know, some fast feet. They're not buying into it. My name is uh, still not mentioned, and I'm wondering why. I mean... I could at least be uh, the fourth man. I mean, because they mentioned that, we might need a backup player just in case one of us gets sick or one of us gets hurt. Do you think they're going to stop and think of me? No, I'm shooting some air free throws back there to show off my form. They're not buying into it. And like I say, they're mentioning a whole bunch of names, and not one time do I hear my name mentioned. And to hurt even worse, I think they settled on a guy that said he was sick, didn't even know if he could make it to be the third man. And the fourth guy they picked was a guy that was in an arm sling. And I'm thinking, they're not even looking my direction. They're not even going to choose me or even consider me. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Remember those days in school, PE class, when you'd play a game and you'd pick teams or after school, you'd get a basketball game together with the guys and you'd pick two captains and they would pick the team. And if you got picked toward the top of the list, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, right? If you got picked toward the bottom of the list, you're not feeling good about yourself at all. And if you were the last man standing, you really didn't even get picked. <laughs> that You were just the guy that the team got stuck with, I'm just saying. 
And the reason you weren't chosen is because those that were picking the teams didn't think you were valuable enough to choose you. They didn't think you were valuable enough to pick you. Well, aren't you glad our God doesn't do things like that? He doesn't operate that way. God doesn't love you or pick you because of your potential. That ought to make a lot of us glad this morning. Amen? God didn't look down the long corridor of life again into the future, into the year 2020, and say, man, I've got to have him on my team because he's such a super Christian. Or, man, I've got to have him on my team because he is so awesome, he's such a great leader. Or, man, I've got to have her on my team because she is such an awesome teacher. Do you realize God doesn't love you be, uh, because you're lovable? He doesn't love any of us because we're lovable. God loves us because He is loving. Amen? That's why He loves us. God loves you and I not because of what we can do for Him or not what uh, we can offer Him. He loves us because of what He has to offer us, what He wants to do in our lives. Let that just sink into your heart for a minute and let that kind of inform your identity of who you are in Christ. The world looks at you one way, and you might even look at yourself one way, but God looks at you on a whole nother level. Amen? A whole nother level. Think about this. Your creator, the creator of this universe, has picked you and me to be on his team, and he is assembling the greatest team ever assembled, and he says you are valuable. He says, not me, I'll say it too, but he says, and what he says really goes, He's the one that says, you are valuable, and do you realize there's no losers on his team, only winners? Let me repeat that again. Paul says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. And again, he follows it up with those uh, two powerful words. He loved us and he chose us in Christ. Can you say that with me this morning? In Christ. That's how he loves us. That's how he chose us. And that changes everything. When you're in Christ, it changes everything. It determines everything. And he says to be holy and without fault in his eyes. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word holy. You might think, well, that means perfection. Somebody that's never made a mistake. Somebody that's never done anything wrong. Well, you'd be wrong because it doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that you are set apart. In fact, do me a favor right now and tap your neighbor on the shoulder and say, man, you are holy. Go ahead and do it. Just do it. Man, you are holy. Some of you aren't buying into that at all because you're saying, Pastor says to tap them on the shoulder and say they're holy. He doesn't know who's sitting next to me. <laughs> Let me say, they're probably saying the same thing about you, amen? But all it really means is God is choosing to say that you are set apart. You are holy and you're set apart. He chooses to look at you and me, and it's His choice. He chooses to look at you and me and even though I'm far from perfect, don't tell Cheryl that, but I'm far from perfect. I'm faultless. I am, fault, I am full of fault. I'm not faultless. You're not faultless. Yet God still says we are in Christ. In Christ, you're faultless. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you're faultless. How can he say that? Well, I think you almost have to go to the last three words of that verse you're faultless in his eyes. Those three words, in his eyes. I really never understood that concept or that theological truth until I became a dad. My son Austin has many moments where he's not faultless and he's not holy. But me as a dad, I still choose to see him that way. You know, he's had me wrapped around his little finger since the moment he was born. 
But one time, often in third grade, I remember this as plain as day, uh, he was given an AR assignment to read an AR book in school, and he chose Harry Potter. And he was going to be given a test on that book after he finished reading it, and he decided he's going to take the lazy way out, the uh, easy way out, and he's going to just watch the movie instead of read the book. Well, the teacher kind of knew that might happen, and so she took every question out of the book, not out of the movie. Needless to say, he got an F on the test. And he had to bring that F back to show us, and we had to sign off on it so the teacher would know that we've seen it. Um, Anyway, we are so disappointed in Austin. I'm chewing him out for taking the easy, lazy way out, and we're scolding him. Cheryl and I are both scolding him, and then he looks over at me with those big blue eyes, and a little tear starts coming down his cheek, and his little chin starts to quiver. It wasn't long after that that I found that Austin could make that little chin quiver about any time he wanted. I mean, to get the last piece of pizza or to stay up a little bit later or more time on his phone, he could do that in a heartbeat. So I'm saying, yeah, my son could be a faker. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about, but I do want to bring out this point. Whenever he would do something wrong, all he had to do was come to me, look at me and say, Daddy, I'm sorry. And my heart would melt. My heart would melt and all of a sudden... He's back in my good graces. All of a sudden, I see him as faultless. Parents, you kind of understand what I'm saying, which brings me to the next verse. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I think the question maybe should be was, why would he do this? And I think the answer is pretty simple, because he wanted to. Because he wanted to, and he knew he would take great pleasure in doing it. And the word he uses is an amazing word, adoption. God has adopted you and me into his family. And I believe through Christ, that's an awesome opportunity for him to help us understand who we are in Christ. And to help us understand his message and purpose for our lives. We all know adoption means that you were not part of the family And then you became part of the family. The Bible describes it as that before we were saved, we were called children of wrath. We were from the family of the first Adam who was sinful. How many have ever heard of Charles Spurgeon, a great uh, evangelist of the past? He describes it as we are the natural heirs of the one, being Adam, who sinned against his maker, who was a rebel against his Lord. Spurgeon goes on and says, If a king should adopt a child into his family, it would likely be the son of some child of respectable parentage. He would never take the son of some common felon or some gypsy child to adopt him into his family. But God, on the other hand, has taken the very worst of sinners to be his children. You know, that's good news for me. Because just like the apostle said, Apostle Paul said, Among sinners, I am the chiefest. Well, I can say right along with the Apostle Paul, among sinners, I am the chiefest of sinners. But God still chose and adopted me. God still chose and adopted us and put us into the family of not the first Adam. He took us out of that family and put us in the family of the second Adam, which the Bible describes as Jesus Christ. And by doing that, he gave us a new name. By doing that, he gave me a new identity with all the rights, the privileges, the opportunities, the responsibilities and all the inheritance that went along with it. 
So what I'm saying, those words are true for every one of us in the room that has put our trust in Jesus Christ. That's an awesome thought, that as we put our trust in Him, all of that is true for our lives. So many times, I think we forget that. Paul goes on and says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. That's a pretty amazing thought. Amen? And what he's actually saying is every one of us had the nature of our earthly father, Adam, you might say, until we received Christ. And when we received Christ, he took that all away. He took our natural away and gave us spiritual. He gave us a nature just like himself. All of a sudden, we are his children. Amen? We, were, we did belong to Adam. Now we belong to Christ. I don't know how many of you, this video went around a few years ago. I don't know how many of you saw it. It's about a little girl who was in foster care. She was living with some foster parents, and one day they decided that she's not just going to be our foster child. We're going to full out adopt her. And I want to show you this little video because it'll wreck your heart. But take a look at this. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? I don't think, unless you're in that situation, you can fully appreciate that situation. But I think about that little girl. She was an orphan. We don't know if she had lost her parents. We don't know if her parents had abandoned her. But she was an orphan. But now she's been adopted. But now she belongs. Where she didn't belong before, now she belongs. That video brings tears to my eyes every time I see it. Then it hit me. I think there's one word that describes her response. One word. And it's worship. I believe it's worship. In that moment, she realized that she wasn't alone anymore. In that one moment, she realized that she had been adopted into a brand new family that loved her. That's an amazing thought. Unfortunately, I think so many of us, we've kind of lost the wonder of all of that when it comes to being adopted spiritually by God. I think we've kind of let that slide. We've forgotten how lost we really were. We've forgotten how hopeless we really were without God to the point where life is just kind of ho-hum. Even our walk with Him is just kind of ho-hum. Let me ask you to be honest for a minute. You don't have to tell anybody, but be honest. When you came in here this morning, did you walk in here with an excitement? Did you walk in here with an expectation that, wow, I get to meet with my Heavenly Father with the people of God today? Or did you just say, well, it's Sunday, got to go to church again? Think about it. Where are you in your walk with God? Does He bring that excitement? Do you? No, not Him bring it. You bring it. Does, do you bring that excitement into the house of God that we get the opportunity to hear God's Word, to pray together, to be together, to love each other, to fellowship together, to live in the way that God wants us to live as brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are we just kind of, okay, it's my duty to be here on Sunday morning. I don't know if you've ever adopted a child or know someone that has adopted a child, but let me ask you, is that child their child? Oh, they might not share their DNA, but is that child their child? Absolutely. When they adopted that child, that child became theirs. Totally theirs. With all the rights, all the privileges, all the responsibilities, and all the inheritance and all the love that was attached to all of that. And that's the word that Paul uses to describe what our God has done for you and me. Adoption. A beautiful word. God has adopted us that don't deserve it into His 
family, to be his children. He's saying, this is the kind of love that I have for my kids. This is the kind of love that I have for uh, my children. Let me ask you to be honest for a minute. If you have kids today, do you love your kids based upon their behavior? Do you? If we did, that we'd be in trouble, right? <laughs> we don't love our kids based upon their behavior. We don't love our kids based upon, upon their performance. We don't base our love for them on what they can do for us. I mean, really, let me stretch a little further. How much weight are your kids carrying around the house? I mean, are they cleaning up messes or making more messes? Amen? Think about it. Are they adding to the family income? We don't ask them to do that. But we don't love our kids according to their performance or even their attitude. We love our children because they're my children. They're our children. They belong to us. Well, let me tell you, multiply that a billion times over. God loves you and me because we're His. Because we belong to Him. Let me tell you this morning, you might have given up on God in whatever situation you're in. I can say with 100% assurance that God hasn't given up on you. He never will. And when you're faithless, let me tell you, God's faithful. We're faithless a lot of days, but God is always faithful. And some of you walked in here today, and you might have been thinking uh, that your actions, your behavior, and your choices are what makes you lovable. Well, I hate to bust your bubble, but you'd be wrong, especially in what God's, uh, in God's sight. God says, listen, you're one of my kids. You're one of my children, and in Christ, regardless of your faults and your failures, I see you as faultless. I see you as faultless, and I see you as holy. I want to kind of wrap the rest of this sermon up with verses 13 and 14. Paul says again, And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. That is basically saying that the Holy Spirit of God that He has given us is that guarantee that He's placed within us. We've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father chooses us, God the Son rescues and redeems us, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit... He's our deposit, you might say. God the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. He's our guarantee that God's going to follow through on every promise that He has made us. It's kind of like if you've ever bought a house. It's kind of like the realtor may have come to you and said, uh, well, the seller wants some earnest money down before the sale to make sure you don't walk away from the deal, make sure you don't walk away from the promise. So you lay down some earnest money. They put it into an escrow account before you close. Well, it kind of works the same way with God. To help you understand a little bit more, God says the Holy Spirit is my deposit. The Holy Spirit's my guarantee. The Holy Spirit is my earnest money. The Bible says that we, when you come to Christ, are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You know, I can see that as kind of God's way of sealing the deal. Let me close with this story. I heard a story about a minister who had a 17-year-old son who went out with a friend of his one night, and they got into some big trouble. They were arrested by the police. The police department called the minister and said, we've got your son down here at such and such place. And uh, him and his buddy were caught vandalizing uh, a business. And uh, we've got him arrested. We've got him in handcuffs. He said, I want you to come down here. So the minister jumps in his car. 
speeds down to uh, this address, his heart's beating out of his chest, and all the way he's thinking, what has my son done? I didn't raise him like that. Why would he do this? And when he shows up, he sees two police cars on the scene. They both got their, have their lights going on, and the back doors of the squad car are wide open, and both of the boys are sitting in uh, the police cars apart from each other with handcuffs on, and the minister looks over and he recognizes his son, and he sees his son handcuffed, looking at the floorboards in shame. He starts to walk over to the car where his son is, and he noticed that the other father had just arrived, and he gets right in his son's face, and he's chewing him up one side and down the other. He's cussing him out, and he steps back, and God kind of put a check in his spirit and said, wait a minute, I need to take a breath. I need to take a breath because what I say next can change everything. What I do next can change everything. He prayed a little prayer, and then he walked quietly up to the side of the car. The door was open. He knelt down beside the car. His son wouldn't look him in the eye, still looking at the floorboard in shame. And he looked at his son, and he said, Son, look at me. Look me in the face. And his son gradually rose his head, looked him in the eye, and he said, Son, I know what you've done, but that's not who you are. I know what you've done, but that's not who you are. And he embraced his son. He knew without a doubt that his son could get beyond this moment, but the words that he was about to say, the actions he was about to take, could be life-changing, could be life-altering. Let me say this morning, I believe in this message today, God is wanting to speak some life-changing, some life-altering words into your life. I don't care if you're walking with him as close as you think you can, you can walk closer. But if you're a million miles away from God, you can walk a whole lot closer. And He wants you to walk a whole lot closer than you're walking today. I believe God is trying to say to all of us, you're valuable this morning. You're precious in my sight. And let me just say this. Can I just say to someone here today, I don't know who it might be, but God knows what you've done, but that's not who you are. Maybe God says, I know what you're doing. But that's not my plan for your life. That's not who I've called you to be. Or God might even say to some of you, I know what's been done to you. But it's not who you are. You have a heavenly Father that loved you in advance, that chose you in advance, and loves you with a love that is unconditional. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've walked away, no matter how broken you are, no matter how many rules you've broken, God loves you with an unconditional love. And he's just saying to this congregation, I know what you've done, but that's not who you are. Amen? Could you stand your feet this morning? I'm so glad that we serve a God that's a God of a fresh start. He's a God of a second chance. I can't tell you how many second, third, fourth, I don't have enough fingers to tell you how many second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, chance after chance after chance God has given me. God has given me those chances, and He's the same God for you that will give you all of those chances. And for many of you, He has. I'd say for all of us, He has. God is a God of a fresh start. This morning, I don't know where you're at in your life, but I can't believe without a, with a congregation this size that there isn't someone that's really down and out this morning. That you feel like a failure. You feel like the world has passed you by and that there's no hope. Let me tell you, there is absolute hope. And you've just heard it today. And it's not in me. It's in this message, and it's in this message because God is in this message. His Holy Spirit is in this message. So no matter how broken you are today, God loves you.
God loves you. I want you to hear that from me, but in your heart right now, I want you to say, God loves me. God loves me. How about saying it? God loves me. We need to realize that. We need to remind ourselves of how much God loves you. How much God loves me. He loves you and me so much that He sent His only Son. The Bible says His only begotten Son to go to the cross and die a brutal death upon the cross, shed His blood, and die to prove that love. Die to prove that love. Die to shed His blood for forgiveness of sins. And you know the greatest part that ties into this message is that because He did all that, I am no longer myself, my own. I belong to Him. I've been adopted into the family of God. Amen. And if you've been, you've made Christ Jesus your Lord and Savior, you've been adopted. We belong to Him. We have His nature. Does that mean we're perfect? No, far from it. But it's a process. I'm a work in progress. You're a work in progress. And I pray that I'm drawing closer to Him every day, with every head bowed, every eye closed today. Lord, I pray that every one of us in this place would just invite your precious spirit that, as your word tells us, is a guarantee of your promises into this room and into our hearts today. Lord, we, to be honest, we don't know how it all works. Our minds aren't big enough to know how it all works. But I pray that every one of us would say, I want to listen, I want to believe, and I want to hold on to the hope that only you can give. Lord, I pray that you would meet every one of us right where we are today. And I pray that you would do a transformational work when it comes to our identity and help us to realize how valuable we are, that you sent your only son to the cross. I pray that we would worship like that little girl in that video when she learned she had been adopted. Father, I pray we'd never lose the wonder of all of that. Lord, help us to realize how much you love us this morning. And as we walk in this newness of life that you can only give, as we walk in this genuine relationship with you as an adopted son or a daughter this morning, help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and our strength. Help us to love you more and more each and every day. Amen? I want us all to do that. You go out and love God and love the world. Amen? God bless you all.